amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey guys, it's Tempting Melanie from Clan of the Cave Horse podcast. It's a little show I do with my buddies Nelson W. Piles and John Towers. You can hear us on society-13.com or on thecavemanmafia.com. Since everybody is a little preoccupied with whether or not I'm going to be impregnated in the next couple of years, this story seems kind of relevant. Uh, a friend of mine came up to me one day and he said, Hey, you like sex, right? Because, <laughs> you know, is there anybody that says no to that question? He says, hey, have you ever heard of this thing called the baby train? I said, no, what's the baby train? You know, there's a story about this town somewhere in the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia, I think was the other place. And every so often, this train comes through at 5 o'clock in the morning, honks its horn, wakes everybody up. Since it's too early to go back to bed, I guess, you know, because everybody has to get up for work, they decide to kill some time, have some sex, you know, before they're off to work. And then, bam, in nine months, there's this huge baby boom because everybody got woke up by this train. Well, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems like it could be. Maybe I should think about moving there. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this They start telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. ...to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Hey, welcome back, guys. We're so happy you're all here. Let's take a moment for our weekly affirmation. Hi, pretty listener. You're my favorite. Hugs, 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 and kisses, and all those things. Except that pimple, like right there. Okay, yeah. Mm. Let's talk about concealer. It's going to be really important for you. Just kidding. You're perfect, just the way you are. So... Sam, our last two episodes were listener-inspired. That's true, they were. And if you would like to be an inspiring listener, you can call us on the Urban Legend Hotline. And the number for that is 512-222-3375. We look forward to hearing from all of you. We do have our other podcast, the Audio Dime Museum, which has a new season up now. That's right. We are taking a look at the storied and mysterious and often mischievous history of the circus. Yeah, and so we'll put a link in the information, or you can also just search Audio Dime Museum on any of your podcatchers. Podcatchers is such a cute word. It's like something to do with Pokemon. I feel like it's something to do with Pokemon, which I was thinking about it the other day, and the new Pokemon thing is like bird watching for people who hate nature. It's tricking people into going outside and exercising. It's bird watching for people who hate nature. So anyway, back to the story at hand. Oh, are we off topic? Never. (laughs) Okay, so what are we going to talk about this week? This week, we are going to discuss the famous, infamous... 
ludicrous. <laughs> yes. Urban legend. The baby train. Okay. So this is the title of one of Jan's books. And you know we love Jan. And I always looked at it and I thought there's no way we're ever going to be able to cover it. But never worry. Never fear. We figured out a way. A hopefully interesting way. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. At least we'll be amused. And that's all that matters. <laughs> so... This urban legend begins as many urban legends do, and starts in small town USA, or, you know, Australia, United Kingdom, etc. Etc. Somewhere in the Western world. That's usually where this one's found. There are many iterations of the story. One collected by folklorist Bill Scott in Australia has that a census taker has come to a town, and they have this huge population boom. And he's trying to figure out why there are bloody babies everywhere. Are they bloody? No. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was like, I would want to know the answer to that, too. Someone should care. This is not your murdery murder. You never know. There are a lot of weird murders in Australia. And so this census taker starts asking people what's going on. And he figures out that there is an early morning train that comes through town every day. That sounds obnoxious. With a very loud whistle. That sounds really obnoxious. And it's like four or five in the morning. And so people wake up. Mm-hmm. It's too late to go back to sleep. Because they have to get to work, right? It's too early to wake up. Yeah. So what's there to do? Canoodle. Canoodle. Oh, no. Scandalous. They don't want to get out of bed. And really, what is there to do in bed? Crossword puzzles, people. Jesus Christ. Get a crossword puzzle. There was no Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I bet there's going to be a big population dip. You look years from now. When Netflix starts streaming, you'll see it just plummet. That's right. Everyone just falls asleep watching Stranger Things, which, by the way. If you haven't seen it. Just pause for about eight hours. Go watch Stranger Things. Come back and let's talk about how fun the 80s are. That awesome synth music. So, at least people are finding something to do with their time. It's sex. That's so dirty. Doing what sex leads to. Oh, STDs. Well, <laughs> you're sex, then you die. No. Right. I've seen Mean Girls. I know how it works. <laughs> so, somehow, everyone starts having babies. All right, because they're not allowed to watch netflix so instead they just procreate right it's infomercials or sex okay yeah i'm gonna eh, i don't know i really liked the the slicer one when i was a kid like i watched that infomercial like 10 times are we talking about bloody babies (laughs) oh god well this is explaining everything we've taken it to a new level so people in this town started calling the babies whistle babies (laughs) you know this legend has been around for actually quite some time So, is the Australian version the first recorded version? It's not. So, there are numerous recordings of this in different books. It's kind of traced back to England. Okay. Industrial Revolution lore. And this is when, of course, when the train started to become a major transportation device. So, there was one book by Fred Archer. And it was published in 1971. But it was about a small English town in the 1900s. And there's a brief little story, and I'm going to need your help with this one, Sam, to tell this story. So a minister, a vicar, is going around visiting all the families of his congregation. He comes upon this family, this young wife, and they have kids everywhere. Bloody kids everywhere. Stop with the bloody kids. 
This is not a murdery murder episode. That was actually like a quote from the earlier story. Okay. And, you know, he goes to the wife and he's like, why are you having all of these children in this short amount of time? It's like this, Vicar. It's the early morning and the train comes up the incline. And Vicar's just like not understanding what she's talking about. The train passes half past four and my husband can't fall back asleep because he doesn't want to be late for work. It's too early to get up, so there was nothing else to do but... I know, I know. The oh. vicar cuts her off. <laughs> A vicar's slow to catch on, but when he does... Oh, he catches on. Yeah, he gets he gets the drift, and then some. He should hang out and for, wait for the next train. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? And so that's a take from the early 1900s. In 1939, Christopher Morley book, there's a similar story. And a 1944 collection of jokes and anecdotes, there's also a telling of it. You know, they're all very similar. A visitor to a small town near Charleston is struck by the number of children in that village and thinks to ask the waiter at his hotel about it. The obliging server takes the traveler to see the train tracks at the east end of town where the express to Miami comes barreling through it's this way he explains the damn train rushes by here every morning at seven o'clock it's too early to get out of bed and too late to get back to sleep you know when i hear about this i'm like this is like a very tidied up version of like something you'd hear i don't know like your your grandfather's letter to penthouse or something like i used to get lucky every morning at seven so this was in the party joke section of the 1956 (laughs) issue of playboy of course it was <laughs> so spot on well i think you're right you know is this is stuck around so long because it's kind of a dirty joke kind of dirty old man joke i guess like it's something that my dad would say and then laugh his ass off about while i'm sitting there going uh-huh it's hilarious you're so subversive so, you know, and the idea is that is that adults with nothing better to do <laughs> Will spontaneously turn to sex as a form of entertainment. Huh. Okay. You know, without regard for family planning or birth control or anything like that. Basically, just just animals. They're just animals. All well, of them. Well, they are. Yeah, well. <laughs> One folklorist, Edry, wrote, It's evidently pleasing to many people to fantasy that when people are trapped by some immobilizing event which deprives them of their usual activities... Most will turn to copulation. It's evidently pleasing to some people. That's my favorite, like, introduction. Like, uh, far be it from me to say that I think it's funny, but... But it is interesting because, you know, it takes that idea of, like, oh, we're just not going to care at all. We're just going to have a bunch of babies. You know what causes that, don't you? I don't. Oh. Oh, no. What, what do you mean? What causes a bunch of babies? Yeah. What causes a bunch of babies? I don't know. Oh, God. How did you get to be a doctor? If there was a whistle, you just wouldn't care. Apparently. Okay. All right. I'm on board. Faulty logic and all. So what makes this so funny is the spontaneous generation of generations. That's the humor. That's the punchline. That's axis on which the story turns. Yeah, right. Definitely. But what have I told you? I had a really, really funny, really true story about a microcosm baby boom. I would want to hear it. I have one. Okay, where does it take place? Canada. No! Yes! (laughs) So, this is the story of one Mr. Charles Vance Miller. I 
found this wonderful article on 538.com by David Goldenberg called How a Dead Millionaire Convinced Dozens of Women to Have as Many Babies as Possible. Wait, he was dead? Yeah, he was dead. Oh, this is a good start. It's a good start. Okay. At least it wasn't the old millionaire having dozens of babies. That happens all the time, I'm sure. Like somebody's mailed their sperm to people or something. Okay, so he died on October 31st of 1926 when he was 73 years old in Toronto. He created a huge kerfuffle when he promised a vast sum of money to the Toronto family that could have the most babies in a 10-year period of time. And he did this by leaving a very strange will that he described as necessarily uncommon and capricious. Ooh, he used his thesaurus. (laughs) I think that's just how he talked. I hope so. But he was very polite about it. Correct, yes. So he had no children and no close relations. But he did have a fortune of around $10 million. Now that is in today's money and in... Canadian money. Oh, Canadian money. It's like, can, yeah, it's Canadian money, which they have. Did you know that? I do. I got stuck with a bunch. They <laughs> wouldn't exchange it when I came back from Canada and the United States. We're such assholes. His will starts out by giving shares of a jockey club to old gambling opponents. Ooh, he's cheeky. He Oh, wait, wait, wait for it. He gives shares in a brewery to a teetotaling religious leader. I like this guy's style. And then he leaves his house in Jamaica to three men who hated each other. Wait, wait, wait. On the condition that they share it. I love it. The piece de resistance is he wants to leave about $9 million to the mother who has since my death given birth in Toronto to the greatest number of children as shown by the registrations under the Vital Statistics Act. Well, so there's definitely a maximum amount of kids you can have in this right. time period. They consulted some medical doctors, like present-day medical doctors, in that article. And they were like, ah, seven tops. No. You could definitely have, like, 12. You couldn't have 12. Why not? In a 10-year period? Yeah. I mean, like, with a perfect success rate. Right. What could you do? Nobody's going to have a perfect success well, rate. Well, I know. That's <laughs> not the question. Let's go to the experiment. Okay, let's go to the experiment. He also stated that if there was a tie, the money would be divided among all the families. So he's, he's not going to leave anybody hanging, except the person who comes in second. But we'll get to that. The person with eight kids yeah. is screwed. Oh, <laughs> bloody babies. God, that's not your curse word, by the way. <laughs> oh, shit. Here's a fun fact. He was an advocate of breaking down taboos around birth control. Well, the time, would they have family planning and like condoms, pretty much? Well, there were other birth control methods that were banning to kind of come on the market, like diaphragms and things like that, but they were illegal. Oh, I, feel like I should have known the answer to that question. <laughs> I know a lot about birth control history. If you'd like to talk to me about it, I would be willing to go like Margaret Singer up in here, even though she was a raging racist. We're not going to talk about that. It's the second time we've talked about that. <laughs> Local newspapers begin calling the contest. The Stork Derby, (laughs) which I love. Cue an ironic economic depression. Right, because this was in the 30s. It started in 26, which is a perfectly fine year. But of course went to 36. Yeah, and so in in the midst of all of the, the baby having and the time that they were supposed to be out there procreating, you know, the Great Depression happened. Right. I mean, I read Grapes of Wrath. You can't nurse your babies. 
because you're busy nursing. You know, I don't want to spoil the end. No, don't don't spoil <laughs> the end. Let let people find that treasure on their own. So Elizabeth Wilton wrote a thesis on the topic, and it inspired this very melodramatic Canadian made-for-TV movie. Why did we not watch this? I don't know, because I couldn't find it. I'm going to find it. It's where a lot of the information came from. Very few articles kind of focused on the toll that the contest would have on very poor families trying to win. But one article did refer to contestant Lillian Kinney, but noted that one of her babies had recently died from rat bites. Oh, good. So that's the kind of... Rat bites... Squalor. So does that disqualify you? Uh, n- n- well, we'll get to that later. But yeah, one of the babies died from rat bites. So these people are like obviously in seriously needy situations and they are just piling on the mouths to feed in hopes of winning a piece of this Miller pie. All right. Very few derby contestants had multiple births, which that would be like the surefire way to win. If twins ran in your family, you're... You're done. You're you're golden. Oh, I didn't think of that in my math. Yeah. You could have 20. You could have a billion. No. Oh. <laughs> Not how that works. You've had children. What do you mean? I wasn't there for that. The will was challenged in court. No one liked it. No one in the government especially liked it. They thought... Who, who challenged the it? The government. The Canadian oh, government challenged it. Canada, that's not very nice. Now, well... Or polite. Wait for it. The Toronto Daily Star... Puts them in their place. They say that it's communism in the raw. Not to let the will go through. I agree. (laughs) Well, I know. I just think it's funny because the government's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. 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 (laughs) Sorry. So by 1936, two dozen families had eight kids. Papers covered new births and trial progress in equal measure. So like as they're trying to fight the will... And that's one section. And then in one page over, you have like, family welcomes baby number 7,000. Was it like a box score, like baseball? Yes. No, I don't know. There were baby pictures. They're really cute. So 10 years after Miller's death, 32 lawyers showed up to claim that their clients deserved the prize. Judge got rid of everybody who didn't have nine kids under 10. That's a fitting in the 10-year mark. Right. So that left six families. One woman was kicked out because she had her brood with two different men, one of which she was married to and one of which she was not married to. Scandalous. And the judge was like, uh, clearly children and any legal tenant implies that they are legitimate children. Does not actually seem <laughs> accurate. Well, I'm pretty she- sure a child is a child. I think that happened in like 1980. So... She did sue, and she got two hundred thousand dollars later. Hey, there we go. So good, good on you, lady. Stick with it. And then one other woman named Lillian Kenny had eleven children. This Lillian Kenny, whose child died of rat bites, one of them. Well, the kid that died of rat bites counted, but she had three that didn't count because they were stillbirths. The judge was like, "Surely it's not a child, but what would have been a child?" And I was like, "God, dude." He's serious. Hey, we have plenty of U.S. judges that feel they can decide that, too. He said the stillborns didn't count. So that took her total down to eight and put her out of the running. Too bad. Too bad, Lillian. Go home to your rats with no money. Oh, bonus. She named her youngest child Charles Vance Miller Kenny. Oh, she's trying to get a little extra favor. After his would-be benefactor. So the money was divided between... 
the four families, the Timlicks, the Nagels, the Smiths, and the McLeans, each received about $2 million in today's money in Canada. Money. Wait, how many babies did they have? Nine. Nine each? Nine each. Man, what do you think the person with eight kids thinks? Fuck. <laughs> what am I going to do with all these bloody babies? <laughs> That's what they think. But, interestingly, again, Lucy Timlick, the mother, the matriarch of the Timlick brood, came out years later saying, I think birth control is a wonderful thing. I'm sorry, in one way, that birth control information wasn't available years ago. I know mothers who would have welcomed such knowledge, by which she means me! Me! I would have liked to know. Me! Me! Right here. Do you see these kids? Do you see all these bloody babies? They need to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> so, this guy who died childless inspired the birth of hundreds of children. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of this legend, another thing that's often cited in research about it is the idea that things cause baby booms, like little mini baby booms. Uh-huh. Like trains. But also weather. Uh-huh. Natural disasters. Uh-huh. Times of the year. So in my field. In your field. We always joke that in the summer, fall, we're going to have more babies because everybody's canoodling up in the wintertime. What, like for warmth? Yeah. For warmth. Okay. Just making sure your logic checks here. I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily think so, because that's the holidays when you're traveling and dealing with all that crap. You don't you don't want to coodle. You just want to go to bed. You know, I thought this was just a joke. Okay. And I was super excited when I found some research. No. In the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, they presented some research about the rate of birth at different times of year. And it's true. <laughs> it's not. So, peak months change with latitude. So, it really is like when it starts getting cold. It's not just like a, oh, it's baby making time because it's November. Ding. No, I mean, well, we don't know if that's why. It's conjecture. But we know that at certain times of year, there are more babies. And it changes with where you are in the country. And the obvious thing that changes as you go more north is... When cold sets in? Exactly. This is absurd. So the most popular month for birthdays occur earlier in the year, the farther north you travel away from the equator. The surges occur every year for a particular location. They surveyed numerous years. This is not a one-off, one-year thing. So in Florida, it's more common for it to occur in November. And in Ohio, it's more common in June. June's not winter. It's when they're having the babies. Oh, okay. So actually... They're having babies more often in the autumn. Okay. So in the fall time. So it's getting right, so cold. Right, so not 12 months. Yeah. yeah. Got it. I guess you're not sick of the snow yet. It's cold. You're not in the middle of Christmas. Got nothing better to do. It's when the cold sets in. Yeah, right. Yeah, like it's, that's what it is. Yeah. It's like, no, you know what it is? It's the like, oh, thank God it's not hot anymore. I can finally stand to touch you again. That's just Texas. Oh, is that not everywhere? I don't think it's in Ohio. They think it's hot. They're wrong. I know. They do, though. They really believe. They're like, it's 80 degrees. Christ. Come visit us. Yeah, we'd like to share our humidity with you. Really come visit New Orleans in the middle of summer. I love New Orleans. New Orleans in August should not exist. Y'all quit. One thought is, oh, well, maybe this is driven by planned pregnancies. That's just kind of when you'd have it so that you don't have a baby in the sweltering heat of summer. Yeah, I've done that. It was fun. I was, no. No, it wasn't. 
I've never been big pregnant in August, though, which I've always been really grateful for. Also, teacher babies. Teacher babies are a real phenomenon. Women have kids so that they're during the summer. Do you have any research to back that up? I just have all the teachers I've ever known ever. It's true. I don't need paper to show that, but literally every teacher I know. Has tried to time it so that they're like about to get out of school. So another thing that we always joke about, especially in Louisiana, are hurricane babies. Hurricane babies. That's baby-making weather. So again... You're stuck in the house. Power's out. No Netflix again! Uh, and you got nothing better to do. Than drink hurricanes. Exactly. And you know what drinking hurricanes leads to? Babies. <laughs> Babies. Direct. So they have looked into this. And after the Northeast blackout of 1965, mm-hmm. there was not a population boom. And then after the Bay Area earthquake, there was not a population boom. But that did not stop major papers from reporting it, including Newsweek, who wrote, People often make the best of a catastrophe. This is just old dad, like, grandpa jokes that where they're, like, just so pleased that they get to be a little dirty. And USA Today also said, Quake registers big on new baby scale. I bet they had a really cool graph. This is, like, USA Today's forte. Yeah. It was, like, a bloody baby pie chart. Oh, no. There actually was some research directly related to hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So they looked at populations in South Carolina. They looked at marriage, birth, and divorce rate to see how weather affected them. And this was from 1975 to 1997. Good long sample. Yeah, big sample size. Yep. I like it. And so they looked at, in 1990, there was a major hurricane, Hurricane Hugo. Mm-hmm. Um, that was quite devastating for South Carolina. Sorry, guys. And the year after, they did see a spike in marriages and births. Okay. But you know what else they saw? Spike in divorces. That's right. So it wasn't necessarily that people were having babies related to being stuck in the house. It was more like after a major catastrophe, people are like, oh, man, it's time to get married. You know, I'm excited. It's t- let's have a baby. And we're just- alive. Yeah. Or let's like, celebrate. Oh, shit. I hate my wife. <laughs> well, no, I think it's like he never weatherproofs the house. How many times have I told him to go to Home Depot and buy the plywood? There no- there's never any gallons of bottles of water in here. And then he's like, she's always bitching at me. Why don't I evacuate to her mother's house? Do you think I want to go to her goddamn mother's house? I can hear it. I know what the arguments are. I know why it happens. I did not need a research study to tell me that. The baby thing, I think the babies do come from being stuck. I think the marriage thing comes from, like, we evacuated together, so now it's serious. Hey, that's a big thing in Louisiana. I, I know it is. It's like when you, like, make the commitment to evacuate together, that's tantamount to being, like, it's Facebook official, but way more. <laughs> and so there was a 2010 study looking at Gulf and Atlantic Coast severe weather findings related to fertility. Mm-hmm. And they saw that a high severity advisory had a significantly negative effect on fertility. And of course, we would be amiss not to discuss how war affects fertility. War. 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 What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. Except having more babies after. Okay, fine. War is good for making babies later. I actually found a study that was done before World War II was over, looking at birth rates. Uh Uh-huh. And so it was looking at... Uh, birth rates throughout Europe mm-hmm. uh, during World War One, and the current trends as World War Two is ramping up. And so they saw a trend of an increase in births 
as the war was starting. But of course, as men were called away, because you need a man. Okay, so like right before war, everybody's like, "Ooh, we got to hurry and get one going, baking. When it fits with that kind of catastrophe kind of idea, like something bad's happening, like let's have life, let's make those important life decisions. Of course, men are called away. And so without that, especially at this time, you cannot have babies. And then when they come back, lots of babies. I missed you so much. And of course, this leads to the famous baby boom after World War II. The baby boomers. Yeah, from 1945 to 1961, more than 65 million children were born in the United States. At the height of the baby boom, a baby was born every seven seconds. That's a that's a lot of bloody babies. It is. And that's one hell of a whistle. One thing I thought was interesting I did not know was there was an echo baby boom mm-hmm. in our generation. Uh-huh. Because all the baby boomers were having babies. So just there were more people of childbearing age to bear children. Exactly. And in France, there was also a huge baby boom, which for the longest period of time, they had one of the lowest birth rates in Europe. And there was a concerted effort to have more children after World War II. Like, to have soldiers? Yes. Shut up. Not specifically, but one of the thoughts was, we have a low population versus... Germany, <laughs> other Germany, countries, yeah. and you know that's one of the reasons we needed so had much trouble. help. <laughs> so they were like, "Come on, fuck me! We do not need America." <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and France still has a very high birth rate. In two thousand four, had the second highest birth rate in Europe, only behind <clears throat> Germany, Ireland. Oh well, yeah, Ireland. Sorry, I forget. I forget about the Irish twin phenomena. But, you know, this leads to the super important question that we must ask on this episode. What's that? Why are all the babies bloody? Where are all these bloody babies coming from? I know. Okay. I know. You know. I know. Why do you know this? Because. Don't say Cabbage Patch. No, not the Cabbage Patch. That's stupid. I've seen Dumbo. The Disney movie? Yeah. The, like, super racist Disney movie? Yes. I learned about racism and where babies came from. And psychedelic drugs. Yes. If you've not seen that movie... As an adult, as an adult, I highly recommend you pull up a chair. I've seen Dumbo. I know where babies come from. The stork brings them. Like the large bird. That's the one. He wears a little hat, and he has, like, he does a singing thing, and he has like a little flute, like tuning thing he takes out to make sure he's on pitch. And, and sings the birthday song. To the baby. And then he goes away. Okay. Sure. I'm going to let you go with this. Okay. So let's talk about storks. So that's the classic version of the stork, right? They carry the little bundled baby like hanging from their beak precariously and like fly and leave it on your doorstep. Yeah, that's what happens. No, I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm saying that's like the the idea, right? Like that's the, the lore. Correct. Right. Storks come from eggs. What would they know about mammals? It's so, like, I just don't understand. There's no logic to it. So, of course, when I started thinking about storks, I was like, well, I'm going to need to know why. And so I, I Googled a little. And it turns out it's all Hera's fault. Isn't everything? Actually, everything's Zeus's fault and Hera getting pissed off at him. Yeah, it's all Hera seeking revenge. I don't know that Zeus was directly involved in this debacle, but... He had to be. I'm, yeah. Yeah, he had to be. Zeus was like the baby train of Greece. 
funny. Um, keep it. (laughs) Keep it. Keep it. So, there was a woman, pygmy woman, in Egypt, which, no, there wasn't, named Garana. And she was very, very beautiful. She was the beautifulest of all the pygmies. And Hera got very jealous. And so, what does Hera do when she gets pissed off at people? She, like, kills people. She makes them see their dead babies. She turns them into animals. Yeah, that's the one. Oh. You hit it. You got there. Um, She turned her into a stork. A large bird. Yes. Yes. And... Unfortunately, Garana had been happily married to a man named Nicodemus, and they had a son named Mopsos, and she didn't want anything in the whole world except her baby. She missed her baby. And so the stork came to the pygmy settlement and tried to take away baby Mopsos. And they saw her, and they were like, that stork is trying to steal the baby. We should kill it. Because they didn't know that Hera had turned her into a large bird. So that started the age-old war between the pygmies and the storks. This sounds like an epic battle. It is. like It's ongoing for centuries and generations for all time. That is kind of what the pygmies do. Now, this is not pygmies like you're thinking pygmies, like the racist term that was applied to any short person from Africa and the actual tribe of people from Africa. So there actually are tribes called pygmies. Right, but then like any short person from Africa was called a pygmy too, like during our darkest days. But these are not those. Like here in my notes, it says, pygmy doesn't mean what you think it means. These were mythical half-foot-tall, dark-skinned people who lived at the end of the world's ocean because the world was flat. Well, it is flat. Right, yeah. They were a nation of mythical dwarves, and their defining characteristic was that they were at war with cranes, reed stork, and that's kind of like what we know about them. They kind of fought with storks. It was their deal. Okay, so they were like a half foot tall? Yeah. That's an adversary. Yeah, no, it really yeah. is. Like, it was a it was a worthy battle. This needs to be... A Disney dir- movie? R. <laughs> directed by Peter Jackson. Yes! So, that's the... Greek myth that leads us to the iconography of a stork carrying a baby away or attempting to before being attacked by small pygmies. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm with you. Okay, so that's the that's the seed and then also in Egypt, like actual Egypt, not what they called Egypt where the pygmies lived. Storks represented the soul of a person or the ba. When a stork would return, people thought that that was the soul of a person returning. To come back to the land of the living. So they got associated with kind of like life and souls and bringing life and things. And in the Norse tradition, storks represent family values and commitment to one another. Because people think that storks mate for life. They mostly kind of do. They're more likely to return to the same mate than other birds. But it's not strictly true. So like humans. Yeah, they're kind of like hussy storks. But they do go back to the same nest year after year, and the male does hang around and help raise the kids and things. That's nice. Yeah, it is nice. Does he bring a pebble? There's no pebble. They bring them frogs. That's nice. Yeah. Better than chocolates. No, they're not. So the stork's natural behavior might have lent something to the tradition of the stork, meaning all sorts of things about babies, because they would fly south in the fall. And then return nine months later. And they'd be seen in the European sky between March and April. And babies born in March and April were likely conceived in June. And June is when they had the festival of 
fertility and marriage and summer solstice and all of the debauchery. So they were, you know, <clears throat> they were canoodling. Yes. Yeah. Their migration patterns seem to sort of lend themselves to the belief that they went away to go get the babies and then came back and brought them with them because they had that nine month migration pattern. Of course. Right. I think all that contributes. You have the mythical significance in several different cultures. You have this idea that they mate for life and they're very family oriented. You have the nine month migration. But I think when this really got sticky and came into sort of the cultural consciousness, maybe like the zeitgeist, is when Hans Christian Andersen, the cheeriest motherfucker to ever pick up a pen on behalf of children. He was no grim. I don't know if that's true. Uh, thinking of mermaid story. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, no, and he, like, came up with it. Like, he wasn't just documenting. This was his creative writing. But anyway, he tackles the storks. He writes a short story called The Storks. It's published in a collection called 42 Stories in 1930. And the story is that there's a nest of storks and some kids are teasing them. Bastards. Yes. And so these storks grow up wanting revenge on this one boy. Maybe the storks thought they were pygmies. It's very much like that. They, the storks are like, these are, they're a little taller than half a foot, but I could take that bastard. And so they finally learn to fly and they say to their mother, we'll go with you to this beautiful land and be in the warmth for all of winter and not die of frostbite or whatever happens. But we're going to need revenge on this boy who sang that mean song. Let's eat him. Basically. I'm going to read the end to you because nobody does it like Hans. Is this my bedtime story? It is. I'm good. I'm going to snuggle up. Get your I have my, my, st- my seal. Your seal. My stuff seal. Seal, seal. Our daughter. And they say to their mother, but what of our revenge? And she says, to be sure, said the mother stork, I have thought of something that will do beautifully. I know where the pond is, where all the human children lie till the stork comes and fetches them to their parents. The pretty little children sleep and dream such lovely dreams as could never come to them afterwards. All fathers and mothers want a little child like that, and all children want a sister or a brother. Now then, we'll fly to that pond and fetch one of each of the children who didn't sing that naughty song and make fun of us storks the other children shan't have any but the one who began that song the horrid beastly boy screamed one of the young storks what are we going to do to him why in that pond lies a little dead child that has dreamt itself to death what the fuck <laughs> this is a stork i I'm mean not sleeping okay? <laughs> let me say again why in that pond lies a little dead child that has dreamt itself to death. We'll take that to him, and he'll cry because we've brought him a little dead brother. But that good boy, you haven't forgotten him, the one who said it's wrong to make a game of animals, will bring him a little brother or sister. What? <laughs> I feel like this might have been some inspiration for Hitchcock's The Birds. <laughs> was oh god you're so right but yeah that's hans christian anderson writing for children yay so now that we know where babies come from right the pond where the storks go and 
Apparently there's a few dead babies floating in there too. God, it's so bad. He was really big on death and water. Go listen to The Little Mermaid. Like, go find it somewhere and like let somebody tell it to you because reading it won't do the same thing. Yeah, Myths and Legends has one. Oh yeah, that's true. It's really good. Myths and Legends is a podcast. You can look it up on iTunes and they have a lot of just kind of like raw storytelling, um, less analysis. Definitely. But yeah. it's really, it's it's very entertaining still. So... We now know where babies come from. Okay. There probably are some alternative methods of getting babies. Say, like, if you live in an area where storks are not indigenous or where the pond has gone dry or where someone saw the pond and was like, what the hell are all these babies doing in the pond? And, like, cleared it up. So I'm open to hearing about those if you want to tell me that babies come from somewhere else. But definitely birds. Birds. (laughs) So once we have the babies... I think of, especially in relation to our story, how we get these babies around to our different family members. So, you know, we definitely love to drop the kids off. Yeah. At Nana's house. Uh Uh-huh. Hi, Nana. Hi, Nana. Thank you. They're here. They're not with Nana, just so you know. Yeah. So if you want to come get them. No, no. (laughs) Stork's going to show up. Shut your mouth. Oh, it's nice to the stork. No, I I don't want to be nice to the stork. He'll bring me two. (laughs) I'm going to be moderately okay with the stork. Just wave, acknowledge them in passing. Hey, thanks. But, you know, we could get babies around by just, like, mailing them. Shut up. Wouldn't it be great if we could mail the kids to your mom who's, like, yes. 300 yes. miles away? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Yes. Let's do it. Yes. Get a box. Yeah. Big box. Well, Poke some holes in the top. Yeah. Draw some arrows on it. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was buying a guy once that was shipping chickens. Live chickens? <laughs> yes. At the post office. Because you can do that. Through the mail. Yes. You can mail chickens. Yes. So in Can you mail storks? I don't know. <laughs> it's very meta. In 1913, the United States Post Office introduced the Parcel Post Service. So that was whenever they were, you were able to start sending packages. This was a big deal. People were finally able to ship large items around the country. Okay. And so immediately all parents think, I'm just going to ship my kid. No, they don't. There were many, many instances of children being posted, being mailed to their relatives. Shut up. No, there weren't. No, no. I'm sorry. I don't believe you. I didn't believe the, like, I didn't believe the time of year thing, and I don't believe this. No. So there are several articles in the New York Times about this from the time period. No. No, there aren't. Stop it. So Vernon O'Little was a mail carrier on a rural route. And he was the first man to accept and deliver, under parcel post conditions, a live baby. The baby, a boy weighing 10 pounds, three, 10 and three quarter pounds, just within the weight limit of 11 pounds, was the child of Mr. and Miss Beagle of Glen, Mr. and Miss Beagle. The boy was well wrapped and ready for mailing when the carrier received him and delivered the boy safely at the address on the card attached to the boy's grandmother. Beagle's grandmother only lived about a mile away. And the postage was 15 cents. And it was insured for $50. What do you mean wrapped? <laughs> this, is, like, this is where I tuned out and started thinking about what the kid was wrapped in. Round paper? Was he tied with tine? Like, I'm going to wrap myself in paper. I'm going to wrap myself with glue. Stick a stamp on top of my head. I'm going to mail my baby to you. Like, really? Really? Special delivery. Like, seriously? Is that where that comes from? Oh, my God. I'm freaking out. 
So it was originally just like, oh, you know, our buddy, the postman. Hey, can you carry this baby down the road? Okay, I can carry that baby down the road. I've got nothing else in this giant bag, except I look like St. Nicholas or Black Pete or some shit. No. No. This did not happen. It did. And it kept happening. Where one boy, a two-year-old, was sent by parcel post from his grandmother's to his aunt's house. So it was like a mile. I know, this is a new one. Okay. (laughs) It was a little further. Okay. How far? Well, it was from Stratford, Oklahoma to Wellington, Kentucky. Kentucky? Yes. Kentucky. It was from Oklahoma to Kentucky. So the two-year-old boy wore a tag around his neck, showing the cost of the postage. No. To send him through the mail and where to go. He was transported by rural route before reaching the railroad. He rode with the mail clerks and shared his lunch with them and arrived in good condition. So, like, he had a lunch that his mom had packed, and he, like, gave it to the guy? No, the mail clerk shared his lunch. Oh, okay, well, that was nice of him, because his mom didn't pack a lunch, because she's sending her, her grandmother didn't pack a lunch, because she's sending him through the mail. Right, and so he was transported, actually, via mail train. Uh-huh, baby train. Exactly. Ah, there we go. So we do have people, babies, coming via train. There they are. Here come the babies. Bloody babies everywhere. Storks. Ah, run away. So these are all really small children, babies. Infants, toddlers. But on February 19th, 1914, May pissed her off. Almost six years old. No, not a real name. It's real. Not a real name. May have pissed her off. Yeah. No. This is from the Smithsonian. (laughs) It's almost six years old and mailed from their parents' home in Idaho to her grandparents 73 miles away. It only cost 53 cents. So if you can get your kid in one of those flat rate boxes, I feel like we should be sponsored by Stamps.com for this episode. We should. And, but, and she also traveled by postal train. Okay, so people are mailing children. The post office finally got wind of this. How did it escape notice for so long? Well, a lot of times they were traveling with people they knew. So like they know the postman? Yeah, like the last one, they, it was a family relative. The postman was a family yes. relative? Okay, well, that's really not... That's just like hitching a ride. It's a little better. Okay. But they still went like paid for stamps. And like tied tags around their necks and like, no. But on June 14th, 1920, the first assistant postmaster general ruled that one could not transport children through the mail. (laughs) That they did not come within the classification of harmless live animals. (laughs) No, they're not. They're not. They're not. Which do not require food or water while in transit. (laughs) Depends on who you ask. But there was one kind of heartbreaking application to the postmaster about mailing a baby. And so the New York Times again printed an article regarding a recent letter to the postmaster general from a family wishing to adopt a baby that was in Georgia. They had no children and really wanted to have one and were willing to adopt this child that needed a home, but they were unable to get from their home in Pennsylvania to Georgia. So they sent a letter inquiring about proper specifications for wrapping a baby so they could receive a youngster by mail to their home. It's not sea monkeys, y'all stop! But I mean, it's sad. You know, they're wanting to adopt this baby in Georgia, and they're unable to get there. They're saying, hey, can we just just pay like 50 cents and mail them up here? I mean, we'll pay postage. We'll buy insurance. Like $50 worth of insurance. If this kid had been born in New York City, 
things would have been very different for that family. Why is that? Because of something called the orphan trains. The orphan trains? That, yeah. And their counterparts, the baby trains or the mercy trains. Okay, so we have a baby train. We really do. A real-life baby train. Right. Okay, so it started with orphan trains, which are different. They were uh, an endeavor of the Children's Aid Society of New York, and they partnered with the Foundling Hospitals later. We'll, we'll get to that. Charles Loring Brace was the mastermind behind this, and the first train left New York City on September 20th, 1854, and it was carrying mostly 10 to 12-year-olds. Around 200,000 children were placed using these orphan trains, and they would pick up a load of street urchins or otherwise disenfranchised youths and carry them around the country by rail, stopping at towns that had whistle stops. And they would go into like the local opera house or a municipal building, and they would put the kids kind of up for mm, auction. They'd pay for them? They did not pay, I don't think. There was no mention of that, but they would, you know, get up there and, like, the kids would have to look adorable and be charming. And some of them would sing songs and things and hope that somebody would take them home. And that's where the term up for adoption comes from, because you were up for auction, up for adoption. Really? Yes. And so they had a little talent show. Basically. So they'd get picked to go work on a farm. Not all of these kids, but most of them were picked up as domestic help or farm laborers. The way that this was done was by granting an indenture. An indenture form was used to place the children. It was a legal document that gave them legal recourse without going to court, should the placement not be satisfactory. And the child had to be removed. It was often called an early form of adoption, but it was not adoption as we know it today, because with adoption, the child is legally a parent's natural child. Indentured children were not legally adopted and were ineligible to inherit unless the adults left a will specifying that the indentured child was to be given an inheritance. So it's like indentured servitude. That's what I think of, indentured servitude. No, it it is, but it's like nicer is what they're trying to say. Like They don't want to call it servitude. But that's the way they're orchestrating this legally, I guess. There was a reason that this had to be done. There was a reason they had to ship a bunch of orphans from New York to the Midwest. Correct. So for context, and these are this is directly from my written notes, so it's very serious. Urban New York City was absolutely, completely, and totally gross. Is that like the official anthropological term? Yes. Here's some quotes just to kind of set the scene so we know what we're dealing with. Five Points was described as an ulcer of wretchedness, the very rotting skeleton of civilization. Was that on the brochure? Yes, yes, it was on the postcards. Please visit Five Points, the ulcer of wretchedness. Is that where Gangs of New York happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically, dead dead rabbits. rabbits, Yes, all there. They're all there, and they're snapping, fighting, as you do in New York. And then in 1857, the Tenement House Committee wrote in their report... It is astounding that everyone doesn't die of pestilence. Trick question. They do. And then in his book, Gotham, Edward G. Burroughs wrote that half of New York City children die every year. And seven out of ten of those are under two years old. Oh, wow. Those are yeah. astounding numbers. I can see why it's called an ulcer. 
<laughs> yes, yes, it is. And so there was this phenomenon of children just kind of being turned out and abandoned. There were lots of child criminals, very like Oliver Twist sans Fagan. Like there was no, there were no Fagans. So there are a lot of kids running around getting into trouble. It's not a good place for kids to grow up. So Brace's idea is that he's going to round them all up and send them out to the farm country and they're going to get good country air and learn how to work for a living and they'll be better off. And the thing is that they kind of were. Like some people had really negative experiences, just like, you know, some kids who are adopted or some kids who go into foster care, whatever. I guess Supreme Court Justice was one of the orphan train riders. Um, there was a governor of Alaska who was an orphan train rider. You know, a lot of them went on to be bigger fish in smaller ponds and not be criminals. So, hey. there was some positivity. Right. That's the orphan train. I've said already that the orphan train and the baby train were different. So they're just trains loaded with babies all over the place. Yes. Some of the key differences between the orphan train and the baby train. Orphans were sent out randomly. They were not pre-placed. They got on the train and a lot of times, like, they'd have little notices in local papers that kind of described the lot that were coming. People who were interested would wander down to the opera house or the municipal building. They'd go, they'd squeeze their muscles, they'd listen to the song and dance, literally. And then they'd be like, I'll take that one. And then you'd go live with them. He looks like he could pull a plow. Right. Which is why my dad married my mom. But that's another discussion. Babies had to be requested ahead of time. Was there an order form? Yes. Really? Well, there wasn't a form, but this was done through the New York Family Hospital, which was a Catholic institution. So Catholic priests in the Midwest and in the South especially would say to their congregation, if any of you can find it in your heart to take in a poor little orphan from the big old city of New York, we'd really like you to do that. And people said, okay. Yeah, one of the really popular places for this was... Louisiana. Louisiana. I think they had the highest rate, actually. Yeah, we're a Catholic French state, at least the south. The south of the state. They had big families, lots of children, and adoption was a big part of the culture. It was just another form of charity. Including my family. Right. Your family is like multi-generational adoption. You know. Yeah, we were taking in kids all over the place. So the family said, okay. But then they would go to the priest and they'd be like, we'd like a little girl instead of a boy. We want a girl. And we'd like her to be like under two years old if we could. And if she could have red hair and blue eyes, that would be great. And so then the priest would send word to the New York Foundling Hospital. And then the nuns would go to the cabbage patch and pick one who matched. Oh, yeah. Wait, there's no cabbage patch. No. no They'd, like, just... call the stork. Yeah. I... Like, hey, go to the pond. <laughs> Don't bring me another dead Not one. Dead one. Stop. Take that one to five points where it goes. Stop bringing the bloody dead babies. People would request babies that looked like them so they'd blend in right this was very different than the indentured stuff well it was still actually the same legal document right but i mean they were bringing them in to be their children much more by and large yeah Yeah, of course gross generalization but of course i'm sure there are exceptions always but there is a museum being built in Opelousas, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And there are several really entertaining YouTube videos. I highly suggest you watch them. And you can 
hear these stories. And the accent. And the love that's my family. About people coming down the early 1900s. Usually it's people talking about their moms and things like that. That were adopted from these baby trains. And they'd write in and say... Okay, you know, we've got black hair, blue eyes. Kinesin is a black hair, blue eyed kid. And the sisters would go and find the closest match they had. But then I found it interesting that there was a lot of French speaking people in this area. So they got French babies. Yeah, well, and they are uh, true, but they also would get other kids, and that language barrier was a big problem. Mm hmm. And that's true, like, especially on the orphan trains, it was a big problem because if you had a kid who was old enough to be fluent in a language that was not English, he would basically just hang out on the train until he finally got to Timbuktu and there was one guy there who spoke Yugoslavian or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, you can come with me. We'll talk about the old country. And the kid's like, I've never been to the old country. He's like, you'll love it. So after you sent your request to the sisters, you would get a receipt in the mail. It says, have this notice and receipt in your hand when the train arrives. Notice of arrival, number 26. So wait, this is number 26. Okay, so kids were assigned a number and parents were assigned the same number and you'd get this receipt that said your number. So this is number 26. And so when you went to the train station, you would give them your receipt and they'd go find the child who had the number 26 embroidered on her clothes. Seems like a good system. Right, no chance for counterfeit here. This is airtight. Number 26, Mr. Jesse Bell, Mason City, Iowa. We take pleasure in notifying you that your little girl, which you so kindly ordered, will arrive in Manly Rock on train number blah, blah, blah. And train is due to arrive at 515. We ask that you kindly be at the railway station to receive the child 30 minutes before train is due to avoid any possibility of missing the connection as train will not wait should you not be there. Like they just keep going with the baby? Yeah, I guess that's what happens. I guess they just make the full circle back to New York. I don't know. Let's see if anybody wants to pick up an extra. I guess. I don't know. I don't know what happens if you're late. For God's sakes, don't be. This is very important. This receipt must be signed in ink by both husband and wife and is to be given up in exchange for your child who has the corresponding number. They would get the receipt, they'd go to the railway station, they'd, well, they'd sign it in ink, for God's sake. Don't, don't screw that up. Don't want to get the wrong baby. No. So then you'd go and you'd take your receipt, you'd match the receipt to the kid's clothes, where the nuns would embroider it on the kid's clothes, sew it into the kid's clothes, and then they'd sign for him, and they'd get the baby, and they'd be like, toodaloo, and they'd walk away with the baby. So that's how that worked. Foundling, huh? That's a weird one. So the foundling hospital... So was a foundling hospital like an orphanage? It was like that, but it was more specific than that. And lucky for you, I have gone back in time and found a newspaper. Oh, good. And the newspaper is a an account of what it would be like to be left on someone's doorstep as a baby. Like you get to be the baby in the beginning of the article. It's like, imagine you see your feet above your head. And I'm, I think that I'm just going to follow this account. It was in the Cambridge Chronicle. So this is our first person account. We are the baby. You are the bloody baby. Stark has dropped us off. On the doorstep of someone that does not want you. This is from the Cambridge Chronicle, Saturday, May 21st, 1887. And the title of the article is Stray Babies. What do you mean stray babies? Like stray dogs. Like were they picked up by a dog catcher? Like with a big net? Basically. Like exactly. Yes. Keep that image in mind. It's going to come in handy. 
So the article began, Foundlings are altogether too common with us. Really, foundlings are so commonplace that nothing gets printed about nine of ten of them. There's one stop in New York City that gets two babies daily. The city says that between 350 and 500 are gathered annually. No, no, no. It takes a special infant to attract the sympathy or interest of the public. They must be very peculiar. They must be left on some famous man's step or clad in very fine, pretty clothing. So, if you haven't caught on yet, a foundling is a child who is abandoned by its mother in infancy and left for other people to find. So where would they leave the babies? Oh, there are a variety of places. The steps of... People's Houses was popular. The steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral was very popular. Police stations, garbage bins. There were foundling bins around the city. They were shaped like cribs, and you would just drop your baby in and run away. Sometimes just in alleyways or hallways of tenements. Just, you know, wherever. So babies were commonly drugged with a soothing syrup, so they slept. Ooh, I know what that is. What's a soothing syrup? Tell me, tell me. It could be so many things. I think it's booze. It's better than booze. Is it opium? Yes. I was joking. Which was ah. suspended suspended in alcohol. Yeah, so you can look at these old medicines they had for kids. It's so amusing. No, they have codeine, opium, <gasps> alcohol, all these things to help with colic. <laughs> so it's like if your baby's being a bitch, just give them this and they'll shut up. Yeah. Okay. I'd be like sipping on them. I know. I was like, like, when you were like going through what's in it, I was like, we could have a party. Like, get the get some soothing syrup prescribed for the kids. We're gonna hang out, do some soothing syrup. So we got a bunch of babies doped up. And so he goes on to talk about like, if this happened in a town where foundlings weren't so common, people would probably at least like wake up and think it was a big deal and bring the baby in for the night. But here in New York, a citizen would turn over in his mind every chance that there was some reason that his stoop should have been selected. And finding nothing to hang upon that peg of conjecture, he would softly proceed down the street and up to the nearest policeman. Excuse me, sir. Do you have any grape upon? And I have a baby for you. And so... He talks about his friend who did just that, who found a baby on his doorstep and was like, man, I gotta go find a cop. I'm like, meh, 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 and goes off. And he goes up to the cop and he's like, hey, got a baby. Got a baby. And the guy was like, they call me Brigham Young already. I've brought in so many. This will be six. This is a good Mormon joke for back then. I know. It's like, I read it and I was like, that's like still funny. Um, right. That could be in Book of Mormon. Yeah. So then they would brought to the sergeant who filled out a form. And would put something like name, foundling, sex, question mark, looks like a boy. I'm going to put boy. Um, Age, meh, around three months. And then the man who found the baby would be called into court to sign an affidavit the next day. But in the meantime, the baby would be taken to the top floor of the police headquarters where there was a woman employed full time to do this. What I'm about to describe. Oh, please describe it. Okay, so... We find Mrs. Webb, or Miss Webb, beg pardon, a practical, active little woman whom the city pays to receive the flotsam and jetsam of humanity. The flotsam and jetsam from the pond. The pond, yes, storks, right. Pond. Yes. Dead Go. babies. Got right, it. No, not dead babies. <laughs> no, no, they're babies. Not. not yet. So the baby is given a bottle, and then she puts it in a crib and leaves for the night. The baby's just like in the police headquarters in a crib with nobody there. For the night. The next morning, it's washed and dressed. And because this is yellow journalism, it says, and kissed. 
And then it's taken by carriage to Mr. Blake, the superintendent of the outdoor poor. Was that like his official title? Yes. What do you think outdoor poor is? Just like the street urchins. Homeless people, yeah. right? Okay. All follow past him and tell him their woes. And again, I'm going to read from the article because it's amazing. But hold, here is a foundling in the arms of a pretty woman. Hello, Mary. Did you bring me a boy or a girl? A little girl, eh? That's nice. Will you stay for the christening? No? Well, here, John, to his office boy, hold the baby while I name her. Do you think she's Irish or German? I think she's American by birth, anyway. We'll name her Anna Calhoun. No, I don't like that. She's Martha York. That's what she is. Boisterous enthusiasm, just bubbling off the, like, commissioner of outdoor poor. Like, I love how excited they are. They're like... Which sort of terrible ethnicity is she? <laughs> like, I'm going to make derogatory comments about them as soon as I leave. Let's see if she likes potatoes or pasta. Nine! Oh, she's German! <laughs> oh, 1900s. Yeah. The name is then entered into a journal and put on a ticket to go with a child. So again, we've got t- kids with tags. And then they talk on with Mr. Blakes and he says that it was once the practice in the city to name a foundling with an alphabetical system like Oliver Twist. And so then they started naming them after the places they were found. So their last names would be like Washington Square or Alleyway or whatever. No, not Alleyway. <laughs> they were bad. I'm calling that bullshit. So no, it would be like all serve humanity. <laughs> okay. She's, she must be... French. Let us call her Cecile Ulcer of Humanity. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful name. I love it. She'll keep it forever and treasure it always. But that seemed inhumane because it cursed the little ones for life. You know, they'd grow up and people would be like, oh, you're called, you know, Broadway. You were found on Broadway. You're a foundling. I'm going to mock you. And so he says, now we just pick what we like. So he seems like he's doing a little soothing syrup to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just my opinion. So then she's handed off to someone in an ambulance or a pauper wagon. Everybody on the pauper wagon is going to either the poorhouse or the prison. So she's handed off to a bunch of people who are too poor to pay their bills or going to prison or going to the lunatic asylum. They like hand them the baby and they drive off to the steamboat, which is going to Blackwell's Island where the jail, asylum, and almshouses, and the hospital, and they're handed to the 10-day prisoners once they get on the steamship. What's that? These are women who were abandoned, drunk in public, quarrelsome, or vagrant. Can I call you a 10-day prisoner? <laughs> I am due to get out any time now. Not if you keep being so quarrelsome. I'm in forever. I think we need to treat your hysteria. Oh, no. So. That's where babies come from. That is where babies come from. So they're the last landing on the island, and they're taken to Randall's Infant Asylum. And then, again, from the direct quote here. With an average census, 150 foundlings coming and dying daily, mainly the latter. And their pond was full of dead babies. Yes. Paid nurses looked over the prisoners, the 10-day prisoners, who would care for the foundlings. And then the, the author in 1887 opines, The little waif has not escaped the guardianship of vice and crime, and will not while the heartless city is its guardian. They are given to the same bad women, and a great majority die. Then they talk about the record-keeping, and they say any foundling can be traced from where its mother abandoned it to its coffin. But no mother yet has ever called for the corpse of her little one. Wow, that's so depressing. Yeah. 
And he goes on, It is not because of their treatment in the city's hands that the homeless babies die. It is because of the exposure after the mother leaves them, because their mothers drug them, because they are born in misery and poverty, because they are apt to have been half-starved. So they could either go here to Rikers Island. The prison? Blackwell's Island is where Rikers is. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so Rikers is... They're sharing space with prisoners. Like, they're actually riding out to Rikers with the hardened criminal. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. They could either go to Rikers, and then if they're lucky and they make it to three years old, they could go to one of two institutions, the Roman Catholic Institution of Mercy. Oh, that sounds lovely. Or the Protestant Home for the Friendless. Oh, Protestants. <laughs> the Friendless? I'm surprised the Catholic place is not called like the home of the dead. Wretches, <laughs> wretches everywhere. No, it's very, it's, it's nice. It's upstanding. It sounds like I pick that one. If I get to pick, I pick that one. Or if they're the luckiest of the babies that are going to be discarded, they might get to go to the New York Foundling Hospital. This author thinks that the New York Foundling Hospital is the bee's knees. And you could definitely, there's definitely a silver lining. Yeah. To the Foundling Hospital. I'm going to describe the drop off process for the New York Foundling Hospital and what that is now. So he says it's world famous. Babies have been brought to it from every state in the Union and some from Europe. Fancy babies. And he says between the inner and outer front doors of this place of charity, there's an ordinary wicker basket or crib swinging from two uprights and curtained with white and pink muslin. There have been between twelve and 15,000 foundlings left in this basket. Two to three times per night, the doorbell rings and one of the sisters allows a mother to enter the vestibule. Mothers could go and anonymously drop their babies off in this crib within the foundling hospital and know that the children are going to be cared for. Because this is 1887, I believe I said it was, we have to get like kind of judgy and preachy. Now, just a little bit. Oh, we don't do that now at all. Yeah, we gotta get a little. We gotta get on our soapbox just for a minute. Sometimes mothers who were kicked out of their home and disowned by their families for being unwed mothers were allowed to stay at the New York Foundling Hospital and care for their own babies. Well, that's that's nice. Yeah. Silver lining. So it's kind of the home for unwed mothers, and they would like teach them how to, you know, do laundry and cook and that kind of stuff. Because a lot of times they're really young. And they don't know anything about taking care of babies. They don't know nothing about birth and no babies, Miss Scarlet. You know, these girls would be taken in, too. And he, like, talks about how some women are really sad. And he's like, but they are often women who have discarded virtue. But, again, it has been found that many sisters can help them reclaim it. Okay. Their virtue. The sisters, the nuns, will help these women reclaim their virtue. So good news, guys. Then he says that many of these immoral women have never learned anything useful at all. And when taught how to work, they take to it eagerly. Good. It's so good to know that these nuns were able to help these poor, disenfranchised women regain their virtue. Yeah, regain their virtue. They did help. They really did. It was nice. I know how you can regain your virtue. Scrub the floor. Okay, when you put it like that, that's probably actually how it went. In my head, it was much, much nicer. It was like, we can all work together and be sisterly. No. Okay. But he says there are about 2,000 in the care of the New York Foundling Hospital at all times. So this is in 1887. Wow. It must have just been full of babies. Yeah. There and were there about, probably like three nuns taking care of all of no, them. No, they were really well staffed. They went on to be like a hospital and a training okay. facility. And they developed programs that figured out baby formula. What did it develop into now? Like it did, It's still there. What's it called? The New York Foundling Hospital. 
And it's a children's hospital? It has over 41 programs. And it's like after-school programs for kids in foster care. It helps, like, kind of has a court-appointed special advocates team. So they, it's not a hospital. I do. I think it's still a teaching hospital. Huh. Like, especially for, like, neonatal nurses and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Like, they were a very early teaching hospital. Like in the 1930s, they were bringing women in and training them to be nurses and that kind of stuff. The Foundling is a $100 million per year institution headquartered on 590 Avenue of the Americas at 17th Street. And people estimate that the Foundling has saved between 250 and 350,000 babies in New York City alone. Well, that's great. And so, you know, you might think that this was a long time ago. Right. Nobody's leaving babies in like mysterious cribs and sanctioned areas and like getting to walk away without consequences. I mean, once a baby's born, it's on the grid. People know about it. That just doesn't happen anymore. Nobody's mailing babies. No more storks. We're done. Well, so there's something called the safe haven laws. Oh, wait, this started in Texas. Right. Well, it gave women the opportunity to drop off their babies if they were unwanted. Kind of no questions asked. I blocked this out. I knew this. Which I think I think it's a positive thing. I do too. Uh, it's 100% a positive thing. If you're unable to take care of your child, if you don't feel like you can take care of your child, this is a great way to safely abandon your child, really. And that's truly what it is. But to get them to a good place. Right. It's like when you feel that for whatever reason, you're not able to provide the care for the child that it needs, you can trust government agencies or the state that you're living in to sort of pick up where you left off. And it's really the best thing you can do for your child at that point if you feel for some reason you are not able to care for them. And there's been a new development in these laws, safe haven laws in all states. Safe haven laws began in Texas. Mm -hmm. That was the first state to introduce it. And it was like at a fire station. Um, You could leave a baby at a fire station No questions asked. Very recent development. Literally this year, in Indiana, they developed a safe haven baby box. Box? A baby box. And this is where mothers can drop off unwanted newborns anonymously with emergency help, you know, right there. It's a padded climate control container at the fire department that it does have sensors and can... Thank God. Yes. All I can think of is what the sensor breaks, but I'm morbid. Hopefully, maybe somebody goes by and checks it at the end of the night, just no matter what. Hopefully. Or maybe you hear a baby cry or something. Oh, God. Now all I can think about is is the sensor breaks. So there's a small box in the wall where you can put a baby, and the sensor would detect it. What do you mean in the wall? In the wall of the fire station. What's it? Does it look like where you put your money in, like at a bank? Like one of those tubes? No, 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 <laughs> not the tube, but like, you know, like if you go to a pharmacy or whatever and they've got like the drawer. It was like a door on both sides. Anyone that needs help with their baby needs to drop them off anonymously can put them in this box and sensor goes off and the fire department, which usually has EMS nearby, can get the baby and take them to the appropriate place. So we started off by looking at how people will fill their time when they don't have anything better to do with sex that leads to babies. And then we moved on to where babies come from, which is obviously storks. And then we talked about ways people have moved kids around. And I think that the most like alarming or uniquely interesting thing that's happened in this country are the baby trains. I mean, mailing kids is pretty 
interesting, but it doesn't seem like a vast amount of kids were moved that way. So we come to the baby trains and we're looking at that and we're like, why do we need them? And we're like, because people didn't want their kids. And we're like, yeah, but it was desperate times. That's not going to happen again, right? No, that's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.